episode 1089 from goodness to holiness part two blessed are the extremists that still making you nervous we'll see what happens Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DiVono. We're, we're back. It's just a, a provocative title. It is provocative. And and I know you, you've kind of known where I was going with this for a while. But the reason I, I said you're still uneasy about it is because for people who aren't on Patreon, when we were doing Heart of Darkness over there, I, I started to kind of explore some of these thoughts during that conversation. And... I think I said something to the equivalent of I love extremists and I looked across the <laughs> table and I saw fear in your eyes about yeah. what I was going to say next, which is pretty terrific. Uh, but but I do love extremists and I think that after this episode, um, my hope is that not only will you too love extremists, uh, but you'll want to be one. Uh, that That's the goal here today. You know, and maybe just to reset us from last time, I want to again bring up the Benedict quote that is uh, kind of the thesis statement of this trilogy, that the the world offers you comfort, but you are not made for comfort. You are made for greatness. So last time we, we kind of talked about, um, you know, a lot of the, the sort of setup for this and, and just the different ways of being in the world with, uh, you know, big emphasis on Tolkien. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about Tolkien today. But today where I want to go in kind of this middle part is to start talking about extremists. So if we see these different ways of responding to the world, you know, and, and um, the H.P. Lovecraft one is just the sheer terror at, at, at cosmic horror. And then we talked about Arthur C. Clarke with sort of the I welcome our new uh, inhuman overlords and sort of this willful sacrifice of humanity. And then, you know, with Tolkien, we saw becoming the type of person who can face that horror, not give into it, not melt from it, but actually overcome it. Okay, and so it's like there's something there. There's something that we, we want to be. And I would label that something as being an extremist. Or at least being an extremist is a prerequisite to being that type of holy person who can do that. Uh, but as we've already talked about a little bit, as you've already demonstrated in our Heart of Darkness episode, um, that's kind of a scary concept because extremists get a bad rap. Like when we think about extremists, we're thinking of planes flying into buildings. You know, we're thinking of people who are starting, you know, sex cults and everything. It's like we're, we're thinking of people who are like, well, you know, at best, maybe you could tone it down a little bit. At worst, we probably just don't need more of you. You know, not good. And I'm here to offer a different interpretation, but it is provocative. You know, and so what I don't, you know, what I'm obviously going to do is not endorse terrorists tonight. You know, that's not where we're going. This is not the the, the pro Hitler episode, <laughs> but I, I, it also isn't just provocative. Um, because part of where I'm going to go a little bit this week, and then really we're going to go next week, is that the extremists that we all think about when we hear that term, and then the extremists that I want us to aspire to be, that is the saints, as we'll talk about more uh, in just a bit, 
come from the same place. You know, I've talked many, many, many times about this C.S. Lewis quote from Screwtape Letters that the great saints are cut from the same cloth as the great heroes, or the great, the great, great saints are cut from the same cloth as the the great sinners. They're two sides of the same coin, and I think part of what we'll explore a little bit this week and a lot next week is why, why. So the statement about blessed are the extremists is provocative to get your attention, but it's also calling it out. It's like. To be what you want to be, to be that type of holy person who can take on the paths of the dead and face the cosmic terror and rescue Gondor and all the things that we, we saw mythically in Lord of the Rings last week and all that we're going to see this week. It's something that rouses something in you beyond that apathy that it's like, I don't want to just be apathetic. I, I want to be something more. Uh, to get that, you have to go to the same place that the people who fly planes into buildings go to to get to that point. So it's a scary thing. Like, this isn't just sign up for the eight-week course and you get your certificate that you're a certified extremist and then off you go with your good life. Like, you know, this is dangerous. These are dangerous ideas. And you see that. Like you see that with everything. Like For all the good that's been done in the name of Christianity, there's been enormous evil done in the name of Christianity. Why is that? Because it's not safe where you have to go to become that type of holy person. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. So extremists get a bad rap. (laughs) In in conclusion. In conclusion. Hit the music. No, but uh, it's like, so part of that is, of course, because there are evil men and women who are get labeled extremists but i think also part of it is it goes deeper than that i think it part of it is the symptom of the apathy culture that we talked about last time you know like when i think about the kindness disease by which i mean the apathetic type of kindness not just that you know kindness is a good thing properly defined but so much of it where it's just whatever you're doing it's good, you know, just pat yourself on the back, you know, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, everything's good, like that type of kindness, which is just death because it's apathy, because it doesn't move towards anything, you know, is very much opposed to extremism in all of its forms, good and bad. You know, it comes from this don't rock the boat, like don't be a problem, just just mind your own business, be a good human, be a nice person, just be kind and everything, don't rock the boat. And then, you know, of course, the, state, the, the phrase that gets thrown around all the time, very idiotically, I might add if you think about it for more than two seconds, but moderation in all things. Like, really? You know, yeah, some things. You know, you should be moderate in your enjoyment of beer. Uh, you know, you should be moderate in, in you know, how much uh, chocolate cake you're eating. But do you really want to be moderate in how much you love your kids? Like, what a dumb statement that is. What a completely stupid, unthoughtful statement. But, and, and I say unthoughtful, but what scares me is that I worry there are people who are using it that are actually thoughtful on it, because it really is just an invitation to apathy. Not too cold, not too hot, just keep it even keel. And whether you've consciously thought in those terms, you're surrounded by a culture that is pushing you towards that. So extremism, bad rap. 
But what I want to do is present another side of it. And I actually want to start before we, you know, we're, we're going to get to saints. We're going to get to holiness and all of that. But I want to talk a little bit about extremists in general. And I want to talk about a couple of my favorite extremists of the moment. And I'm going to talk about two guys who kind of fit in the physical category, you know, working out, all of that. And they're they're two very different guys. Uh, and I, I'm going to put it that way because it, it, not because this is about physical exercise or endurance or, or weight loss or anything like that, um, but because it's easier to see it in that way. And then you can translate those principles into other areas of your life. So this isn't a, a call for weight loss. So maybe it is for some of you. Maybe that is like you're in apathy and you're overweight because you're apathetic and you need to become an extremist about that to sort your life out. So that might be, but I'm not saying that's the main point here. But the two guys I want to highlight, the first one is somebody we've talked about over on the extra feed. It's David Goggins. So yeah, you, you got really into this guy. I love How David did you Goggins. first discover him? I don't know exactly. It's like just like his name. I kept coming across his name again and again and again. And then I, I watched his Joe Rogan appearance. I just listened to one of his books while I was out running uh, and super inspirational. But so some of you know who David Goggins is, especially if you've been listening to the extra feed. But let me let me just reset a little bit about David Goggins for you. So David Goggins is uh, ex-Navy SEAL. He spent 19 years as a Navy SEAL. And, you know, Navy SEAL, I think, until I really started to learn about Goggins, I, I, of, of course, knew, you know, Navy SEALs, tough guys, they killed Osama bin Laden. Like, you have no idea, you know, what these guys go through for training. And, and Hell Week is part of the Navy SEAL training. You know, so Navy SEAL training is like six months long. But in there, they have Hell Week, which is about 130 hours long. You get three, four hours of sleep in it. And it's just continuous training and it's running, but not just running. It's running while carrying massive logs or boats. It is, you know, in the water, freezing cold water. It's like everything. If you think, what would a hell week be? Well, you know, this is it. It fits the bill. And and you, you, you hear these stories of guys going through hell week. Uh, and you think, how, how can any human being do that? Okay, so that's the Navy SEALs. And then he's also an ultramarathon runner. You know, what's an ultramarathon? Well, technically, any marathon, any race distance over 100 miles or over 26.2 miles is considered an ultramarathon. So you can run 30 miles and and be considered an ultra marathoner. Hey, when we do our marathon, maybe we, we do just 27. Do, just do yeah, one more that we're, we're, we qualify. Uh, yeah, but, you know, Goggins is doing. 100 mile races you know he's been one of the best top athletes in the world he's raced in the Badwater 135 multiple times if that doesn't mean anything for to you i'll give you a brief summary but look it up it's a 135 mile foot race uh through death valley in the summer okay so you think about that like the first half is through death valley hottest place in the country, one of the hottest places on earth in the summer. And then the second half is insane elevation, just up mountains. And he finished this thing in, you know, 35 hours. Dang. Incredible. Yeah. So Goggins is tough, but one of the stories I want to share with you about Goggins, because you think, well, he's just a different sort of guy. Good for him. And we'll talk about that because that's one of the temptations when it comes to extremists is to just sort of poo-poo them off into the corner. But uh, I've shared, uh, there's a lot of great Goggins stories out there, but, and and I, I shared on, on the Patreon feed 
about his first ultra marathon, which is a wild story. I'm not going to repeat that one here. You can go check it out there. Or if you don't want to pay, it's readily available. You just Google David Goggins San Diego one day and you'll hear about how he almost died running 100 miles. It's, it's, it's a very gross and wonderful story. But the story I wanted to highlight here is how Goggins became Goggins. And it started when he was he had been in the Air Force for a few years. He'd gotten out. He was working as an exterminator. And he uh, his daily routine, go to work, spray for bugs, get a chocolate shake, sit on the couch, watch TV. So 297-pound David Goggins is sitting on TV one night watching the Discovery Channel, and he sees a program come on about Navy SEAL Hell Week. And for whatever reason, he has a reaction that none of the rest of us have, which is, I want to do that. He's 297 pounds and it's not muscle, you know? And so he gets it into his head that he's going to start calling Navy SEAL recruiters and ask them how he can do that. Well, he calls them. The conversation starts. They ask about him. They get to his weight. Click. Because it's a joke, right? He's never going to get there. He finally finds somebody who can talk, who's willing to talk to him. And there is a, a Navy SEAL class he could potentially join in just a few months, but Wait. he's got to lose. He's got to get down to 191 pounds. So you can just now when you say a Navy SEAL class, are you saying he's joining the Navy, or it's just a class you do that's similar to what they do? No, with- no, no. Like a, a Navy SEAL training. So he's, he's joining a, the Navy. He's enlisting. He's enlisting. Yes. Oh, okay. But he's got to lose the weight. So David Goggins. How much did you say? 100. He's got to lose over 100 pounds okay. in a few months, which is insane. Having just gone through a very fast weight loss mm-hmm. myself in the last year, that's insane. Mm-hmm. So he sets out and he decides that he's uh, going to start running and he's going to go run a few miles and he gets a quarter mile in, turns around, walks home in tears, defeated. Uh. And then he gets him up and does it again. And he gets up and does it again. And he loses a hundred pounds in two months. Which is, A, probably not very healthy. Yeah. There's a lot of David Goggins stories that end with, that's probably not very healthy, but boy, is it inspiring. He gets into this class, uh, and he he starts to go, so he, he loses the weight, transforms his life. He's in Navy SEAL, the BUDS program. I don't remember what BUDS stands for, but it's the six-month training thing. Um, I think it's underwater demolition, something or other. Doesn't matter. Uh but he's in the Buds program, and he gets to his first Hell Week, and he almost makes it through, and they disqualify him because of medical issues. He's you know, running into medical problems at that point, like just from going through the training. But So he's out, but he can start again. You know, He's not out of the SEALs. He just has to start over the class. So he starts over again, goes through Hell Week a second time, <laughs> finishes it, gets further on into the program and they disqualify him again for medical reasons what back are, to the start do you know what these medical reasons are he describes it in his book it's just he's okay. so beat up he can't yeah. walk basically Man. so he's allowed to enter a third class and they tell him this is it you're either in or you're out and he goes through it a third time three hell weeks in one year Two of them he finishes. His last one, a guy dies during. It's that bad. Oh, my gosh. And so he finishes Hell Week, and he can't walk because his legs are broken. 
So they're literally broken. They're literally broken. But he knows if he quits, he's done. So he goes through the rest of SEAL training, duct taping his legs. Oh my gosh. Every this, single morning. This is gross. It is gross. It's insane. <laughs> You're right. All these stories I'm with, that's not healthy. That's not a good idea. But he finishes and he graduates. He becomes a Navy SEAL. That's an extremist. That's an extremist. That's an extremist I have in my ears when I'm out running, you know, because I hear his voice and it's like, he did that and I want to quit. Because I'm a little tired after a few miles. It's it's insane. Okay. So that's one b- blend of extremists, right, when it comes to the physical area. And it's inspiring. We'll talk about inspiration and motivation in a second. But there's another guy I want to highlight. And this is guy is my favorite follow on Twitter right now. And you should everybody should go look him up. If you're on Twitter, follow him. If you're not, just go look him up anyway on Twitter. His name is David Dana. D-A-N-N-A. David Dana. David Dana is currently 320 pounds, and like David Goggins, it's not muscle. But seven months ago, eight months ago, David Dana was 400 pounds. And he started to get his Twitter following because he decided he was going to change his life. He's up every morning, 4 a.m., Planet Fitness, doing the work. You know, it's been so cool. I've been following him for a couple months now. Uh, He posted a video of himself weightlifting. It gets to Arnold. Schwarzenegger, oh, Arnold yeah. gave him a reply, just complimenting him on his form. And it's so cool watching this guy because it's not superhuman. This isn't David Goggins, right? But he's an extremist. Mm-hmm. Like he woke up one day and decided I'm done being apathetic. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do something better. I'm not going to let my obesity, my apathy kill me. I love this guy because of it, because he's so, again, it's so inspiring. Right. And so it's the two sides. You know, of course, we're not all going to do three hell weeks in one year. I don't want to do one tenth of one (laughs) hell week in any year ever. It sounds awful. Like it just sounds like the worst thing you can imagine. But what I love about that is that both of these guys show you that the lies you're telling yourself are nonsense. Right. Extremists tell us something else is possible. Okay. Uh, one of the things I've noticed as I've gotten fit and as I've now gotten into running is when you tell people, I'm going to go run a marathon or I'm going to do this or I'm, you know, out there running even a 5K or something like that, just listen because 90% of what you hear is them telling you why they could never do that. Hmm. It's just astonishing. As soon as you tell people what you're going to do, they will give you a whole litany of all the reasons they can't. They can't. Like, that's just a taste of the apathy out there. And then you realize you do the same thing. And it doesn't mean everybody needs to go run a marathon. That is, again, I'm telling you this in physical fitness terms because it's easy to understand and get. Then you can translate it into other things. But you take it to anything, you know. Hey, I'm reading my Bible every day. Well, you know, people might be more embarrassed about telling you why they can't, but they're thinking it. Mm-hmm. They're thinking it because you're thinking it when you do the same thing. Like you start rattling off all these reasons. And this goes to why do I love extremists? Why do I love guys like Goggins and David Dana? It's not because they're inspiring. We'll talk about inspiration in just a second. But it's because they require a response. So here's how I want to define an extremist. An extremist is somebody who requires a response from you. 
It requires you to deal with something. Okay. So as not an extremist, you know, running a 5k is not being an extremist, but even just that little taste requires a response of a lot of people. They tell you why they can't do it. Like that's a response. Mm -hmm. They're in their apathy and now they're telling you why they can't. It requires a response. Extremists are like rocks that the waves break against. You know, you can go one way, you can go the other, but you have to respond to them. They live in fundamentally different ways. You know, losing 80 pounds in, in less than a year, like David Dana is. That's fundamentally different. Getting up every morning at 4 a.m. to go to Planet Fitness and be the fat guy in the gym, which is humiliating in its own way. You know, and being willing to swallow. That's part of why I admire the guy. It's not just what he's doing, but that he's willing to swallow the humiliation of all the looks I'm sure he gets to go there and do it day after day after day. Fundamentally different. You know, Goggins, fundamentally different. And the response like from somebody like Goggins isn't, well, you better go run an ultra marathon, but it's like, okay, what are you telling yourself you can't do that you could do if you just get over it, get over your apathy? You know, one of the principles he talks about in his book is the 40% rule, which is that most of us quit at 40% of our potential. Hmm. And he's talking in terms of physical fitness, but it applies to way more than that. And boy, you start thinking in those terms, you start paying attention to that. Like, you know, you and I are both training for Twin Cities Marathon. I'm sorry if I just outed you. That's okay. No, it's it's time for me. It's to time for clean. you to be outed. Yeah. I, I was thinking about keeping it a secret in case I wasn't able to accomplish this goal. But but isn't that, that's like but, part of the. But what we talked yeah. about last week and you said, just tell people. So I start, people. I've been telling people over the course Good. of this last week. So it's out in the world. I've signed up for my first marathon in 13 years. And I've signed up for my first marathon Period. ever. Yeah. You know, but like you're out there running and I always find it's kind of right away in the first mile or so of a long run. Boy, do you want to quit? It's like, this kind of sucks today. Yeah. That's like the 40%. That's not even 40%. Your body and your brain are programmed to not want to deal with unpleasant things. That's why apathy is so inviting. You know, then you, you push yourself a little bit. It's like, okay, I did it. I pushed myself. You want to quit? No. Hmm. Like you've got that desire to quit in you and extremists tell us there's a different way yeah alan watts who's kind of a hippie philosopher buddhist type guy from the 60s uh but he's got some interesting thoughts and i, I like this where he's talking about holiness which you know is is the category i'm putting at least some of our extremists and certainly not all uh would be that there's something scary about holy people like, that's true you know, I think that, and we're going to talk about Jesus a little bit more in a bit, uh, but that comes through in the Gospels. Again, it's this whole absurdity of Jesus just came to, to tell people to be nice. Like, you know, Jesus is kind of a scary guy in the Gospels. I love in, when he feeding of the 5,000, the disciples come up to him. They're like, what are we going to do? These people are hungry. He's like, you feed them. And they're just like, you know, they don't know what to say, you know, and, and like, or the, the transfiguration. Like, they're terrified watching this. Jesus is a scary guy. But, he, you know, scary doesn't mean bad. And this is part of the just be a nice human. Nice humans are not scary. Nice humans are not intimidating. Well, rule Jesus out. Rule pretty much all the saints out. Rule Goggins out. Rule all these guys out. Because guess what? They are scary. Because you look at somebody and you think, 
what type of guy can survive three hell weeks in one year? Scary guy. <laughs> like, scary guy. Somebody who demands a response from you. You know, so what do we do with that response? Well, we, A, keep them at arm's length. That's nice for them. It's not for me. I'm not the type of guy who can do three hell weeks. Yeah, no kidding. Me neither. No, none of us listening to this are, unless Goggins happens to be listening, in which case we'd love to have you on the show. But, you know, none of us are. You're missing the point. That's not the point. The point is, what are you not doing because you just want to contextualize it? Well, you know, three hell weeks in one year, ultra marathon. I could never do that. That's above my ceiling. Yeah, it probably is. But you know what? In between where you are and your ceiling and that, there's a lot of room you haven't explored. You're keeping it at arm's length. The other thing is what I call the motivation trap. Now, motivation can be good. Like, I've got, you know, playlist on my phone that when I'm about a mile and a half from home, you know, it's just, it's motivation stuff. Huh. It's stuff to keep you going. It's so, music that yeah. so, pumps you, know, you up. You know, Goggins says uh, using headphones is cheating. Really? <laughs> Which is funny to me, but I cheat. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when we do the marathon, you're using headphones, right? Oh, totally. 100%. Do you only listen to music or do you ever listen to I usually to listen podcasts? to books. Yeah, books, podcasts, books, yeah. whatever. Uh, but yeah, towards the end, I... I put on motivation and that's how motivation is a good thing like motivation to me i think of it as kind of like the 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 booster rockets when the space shuttle goes off you know they mm-hmm. get you out of the atmosphere but then problem with most people is you only have motivation you have emotion and then you just crash back to earth i have a note i'm gonna say for our next episode of the skinny fat christian okay I saw you pause because i had a thought and i was like no nah, i won't share it here i'll share it over there okay okay that sounds good yeah so you know, motivation can be good, but motivation's only good when it's tied to something deeper. You know, it's like emotion in a marriage. You know, it's good to feel emotionally connected to your spouse, but if you only have emotion, you don't have a marriage. You don't even have love. You just might feel like it, and then you start to feel different because that's what feelings do is they change and they erode and they're inconstant. And, and you know, think of how fragile feelings are. You don't eat for an afternoon and you feel awful. It's like, yeah, your feelings are crap. Well, motivation is a feeling. And so when we look at extremists like Goggins or anybody, I'm so motivated. I'm going to go running tomorrow. Great. What are you going to do two days from now when you don't feel motivated? You're back on the couch, right? And again, it doesn't matter if physical exercise is where your application is. It can be spiritually. It can be reading, intellectually, whatever it is. Whatever thing you would like to do in your life to get you out of apathy. Yeah, your motivation maybe lasts you a week. It's like the whole New Year's resolution thing. I like the concept of New Year's resolutions. I think it's good to have milestone moments in a year where you stop and evaluate things. But the problem is people use it as motivation. I feel really good about eating right. And that's going to last till January 3rd. And then the donuts look good. Well, yeah, it's crap. It's total crap when it's on its own. But we do that with extremists and we do that to avoid the hard work of actually looking in the mirror and saying, wait a second, I might not be going to run ultra marathons. I might not even be running a marathon. You and I are, but our listeners might not be. 
But there's something required of me that I'm not doing. What is that? And so what I want to suggest then is that if we want to go deeper into this and say, okay, well, what is that? We need to look to the saints. But I want to take a brief pause in here. There's a little bit of a brief interlude. Because before we get into the saints, there, there's another dynamic to this, which is when we talk about what we've talked about so far, like running, eating right, whatever. Uh, I don't want to say that it's self-serving because I don't think it really is. I think it's, you know, you become the type of person who can do those things. It makes differences in others. You and I have seen that as we've gone through our mm-hmm. weight loss journey. It's like it inspires other people. And so it's not, I, I would I would hate to ever come across as saying that sound that's selfish or self-serving, but there's also a deeper need for it. Like you need to become a holy person because that's what the world needs. And I found this very profoundly captured in a book that we're reading over on the extra feed, Henry Miller's infamous Tropic of Cancer. Now, some of you are saying, what's Tropic of Cancer? And a few of you are saying, holy crap, you're reading that? Okay, so Tropic of Cancer, uh, infamous for how filthy it is throughout. It's a, it's a book from 1934, I believe. Yeah. And it, it was showed, banned for 27 years in this country. It showed up on the list of 100 essential novels that Ben and I are reading through yes. over on the extra feed. We didn't know anything about it. No, Ben discovered some, so some interesting dirty tidbits. things. So if you want the, the naughty version, you can go sign up for the uncensored feed as I torture Matt with reading quotes from Tropic of Cancer. But I'm going to read a, actually quite a lengthy section here of Tropic of Cancer, and it's not dirty in the slightest. Uh, but what it captures is, for as much as I enjoy the naughty parts of the book, because it's funny. The book's actually really profound. Really, really profound. And part of where I found it so moving is that it feels like almost a novelization of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Like we're in this mess of modernism and so much of the character's journey on a lot of the gross stuff that even comes of it is just him wallowing in this modernist godless world it's like the nietzsche quote of we have you know god is dead and we have killed him and we will never wipe the blood from our hands it's like this book feels like and even quotes nietzsche towards the end uh it it feels like you know we've killed god and now we're realizing wait a second maybe we went maybe we shouldn't have done that and now we don't know our way out and i i want to i want to read this with the headline of why is this even worth it? Why is it worth it? Maybe, you know, okay, I get the personal benefit of everything, but why is this so important? Why can't some of us just be apathetic? And the reason is you live in a world that needs you to not be. So a, a lengthy section here. I'll, I will probably read the whole thing, um, but I'll comment as I go. So he says, once I thought that to be human was the highest aim a man could have, but I see now that it was meant to destroy me. Today I am proud to say that I am an inhuman, that I belong not to men and governments that have nothing to do with creeds and principles. I have nothing to do with the creaking machinery of humanity. I belong to the earth. I say that line on my pillow, and I can feel the horns sprouting from my temples. I can see about me all those cracked forebears of mine dancing around the bed, consoling me, egging me on, lashing me with their serpent tongues, grinning and leering at me with their skulking skulls. I am inhuman. 
I say it with a mad, hallucinated grin, and I will keep on saying it through it, though it rain crocodiles. Behind my words are all those grinning, leering, skulking skulls, some dead and grinning a long time, some grinning as if they had locked jaw, some grinning with the grimace of a grin, the foretaste and aftermath of what is always going on. Clearer than all, I see my own grinning skull, see the skeleton dancing in the wind, serpents issuing from the rotted tongue and bloated pages of ecstasy slimed with excrement, I promise. That's as dirty as it gets. <laughs> And I join my slime, my excrement, my madness, my ecstasy to the great circuit which flows through the subterranean vaults of the flesh. All this unbidden, unwanted, drunken vomit will flow on endlessly through the minds of those to come in the inexhaustible vessel that contains the history of the race. Side by side with the human race, there runs another race of beings, the inhuman ones. The race of artists who, goaded by unknown impulses, take the lifeless mass of humanity, and by the fever and ferment with which they imbue it, turns the soggy dough into bread, and bread into wine, and the wine into song. Out of the dead compost and the inert slag, they breed a song that contaminates. I see this other race of individuals ransacking the universe, turning everything upside down, their feet always moving in blood and tears. Their hands always empty, always clutching and grasping for the beyond, for the god out of reach, slaying everything within reach in order to quiet the monster that gnaws at their vitals. I see that when they tear their hair with the effort to comprehend, they seize this forever unattainable. So he's talking about extremists here, you know, and then I'm going to skip down just a little bit because he starts talking about uh, Dostoevsky, um, which is great, but I'm, I'm going to go over that. Uh, today I am aware of my lineage. I have no need to consult my horoscope or my genealogical chart, which is written in the stars or in my blood. I know nothing of. I know that I spring from the mythological founders of the race, the man who raises the holy bottle to his lips, the criminal who kneels in the marketplace, the innocent one who discovers that all corpses stink, the madman who dances with lightning in his hands, the friar who lifts his skirts to pee over the world, the fanatic who ransacks libraries in order to find the word, word being capital, there, so reference to Jesus. All, right. All these are fused in me. All these make my confusion, my ecstasy. If I am inhuman, it is because my world has slopped over its human bounds, because to be human seems like a poor, sorry, miserable affair, limited by the senses, restricted by moralities and codes, defined by platitudes and isms. I am pouring the juice of the grape down my gullet, and I find wisdom in it. But my wisdom is not born of the grape. My intoxication owes nothing to wine. Then I'm going to see, skip down just a little bit. I want a world of men and women, of trees that do not talk because there's too much talk in the world as it is, of rivers that carry you to places, not rivers that are legends, but rivers that put you in touch with other men and women, with architecture, religion, plants, animals, rivers that have boats on them and in which men drown, drown not in myth and legend and books and dust of the past, but in time and space and history. I want rivers that make oceans such as Shakespeare and Dante, rivers which do not dry up in the void of the past, oceans, yes, let us have more oceans, new oceans that blot out the past, oceans that create new geological formations, new topographical vistas, and strange, terrifying continents, oceans that destroy and preserve at the same time, oceans that we can sail on, take off to new discoveries, new horizons. Let us have more oceans, more upheavals, more wars, more holocausts. Let us have a world of men and women with dynamos between their legs, a world of natural fury, of passion, 
action, drama, dreams, madness, a world that produces ecstasy and not dry farts. I believe he's very into farts, by the way. You mentioned that. (laughs) I believe that today, more than ever, a book should be sought after, even if it has only one great page in it. We must search for fragments, splinters, toenails, anything that has ore in it, anything that is capable of resuscitating the body and soul. I just love that because he's expressing out of the depth of this just disgusting, you know, inward journey that he's going on in the novel. Like he gets to this point because this is towards the end of the book. And I don't think that's a spoiler because there's nothing really, there's not a lot of plot in Tropic of Cancer to begin with. Um, But it's like he gets to the point where he realizes we're just dead. Like we are the wasteland. We're in this place. And what do we need? We need inhumans. We need people who are going to upheaval thing, create upheaval, more wars, you know, more oceans, more. We want oceans that are going to produce Shakespeare's and Dante's and all of that. It's like this this desperate cry from a man who realizes he's part of the problem and wants there to be something more. Like, why do you need extremists? Because that was 1934 and 19 or 2023. It has not gotten better. We've got almost a century more of apathy under our belts, a century more of, of the death of God under our belts. Like, we need extremists. But we don't just need any brand of extremists. We need the saints. We need the saints. And what I love about the saints is they show us the same type of thing. They show us what holiness looks like. The saints aren't saints because they're superheroes. Right, I'm going to come back to that in a second. The saints are saints because <clears throat> they found a different way to live. And before we, before we hold, think we can hold them at arm's length, or just reduce them to motivation. There's, I want to share my new favorite Bible verse with you. So you like to read the verses here when I need something. So could you? Oh yes, I, I got finally. This, <laughs> yes, J, look up James five seventeen right. to eighteen. Because and here's the setup for you. You know, you listen to this episode. You you learn about Goggins. Maybe you go read about him. Maybe you get a maybe you get a inspired spiritually. You read a life of the saints. You know, and you get inspired, and and that motivation's lasting for a week. And that's just like you know, good for them. Not for me. I'm not that type of guy. It's good for the saints, but it's not that not for me. Well, let me introduce you to James five seventeen and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Yeah, the key part there, Elijah is just like you. Like, I love that because the excuse that we all come up with is, well, you know, Paul, Elijah, Moses, Goggins, whoever, doesn't matter if we're talking secular, religious, good for them, but that's not me. Nope. Book of James comes in. Elijah was a man just like you, and he was controlling the weather with his prayers. So what's your excuse? (laughs) It's such a mean verse. It's like a super encouraging verse. But this is like why kindness as we define it is such crap, because that's not a kind verse. That's not a just, oh, it's okay. You're fine just how you are. Everything's good. Just be happy. You adulted today. Well done. Like, no. No. Elijah is a man just like you, and look what he did. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the same thing as a, a faith of a mustard seed will will move mountains. Mustard seeds are very small. You know, I have a jar of them at, at my home office from when I went to Israel. Very, very small. Like Jesus is is saying, this is the pathetic amount you need to move a mountain. What have you done lately? Mm-hmm. Like that's again, like Jesus is he's kind in the true sense. He's not kind in the sense we'd like to say he is. You're saying he's sassy? Yeah, Jesus is sassy. Some like go again, go back to you feed him. Jesus knows what he's gonna do. He just leaves the disciples there with that. It's so mean. <laughs> it's kind of great though. Uh, you know, so the the saints then you you don't get to you don't get that as an out. You can say they're not for you, but you don't get to say I believe in the Bible. I'm a Christian, whatever, and also say that's not me. The, the book of James has ruled that out for you. That excuse is now off the table. You're called to be a saint, period. You don't get an excuse. You know, you're called to not be apathetic. Uh, call to holiness, you're included in it. Apathy's off the table, you know, or you can deal with the fact that you're in conflict with scripture. That's it. Like, those are the only options. Uh, blame the book of James. But the saints show us this life of way, way beyond niceness and goodness. And and in a way that I think even, you know, our, for as much as I love Goggins, as much as I love these other guys I could name, that the, they don't, like the saints are on this other level because their lives are a mess. Like they're not glamorous. You know, you go read a life of the saints. They're not living in, you know, mansions. They're often being killed. They're often martyrs. For the church, you know, and not accidentally, but because they run towards suffering. You know, I shared on the Patreon feed, but I'm going to share it here. And if I did share it here, you've heard this before. It's worth hearing again. But one of my favorite stories, and it's, you say, well, that's probably one of those Catholic things you guys made up. I don't think that really happened. Yeah, it's not the point. Okay, but just listen to the story. Is uh, the Christians are being persecuted in Rome, and and Peter. Uh, gets out of Dodge and he's walking away from Rome and he sees a vision of Jesus coming the other way and he stops him and he asks Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus says, I'm going to Rome to be martyred. And Peter turns around and goes back to, to Rome. It's like, that's when he becomes the saint. That's it. And it doesn't matter if that story, like if you would see it, if you got into a time machine, that's not the point Okay, the point is, think about what that means. Like that story is telling you that's what saints do. They go to Rome to be martyred. And then also maybe apocryphal, maybe not. But but Peter is crucified upside down at that point. He is martyred then. So he's able to escape, chooses not to. He turns and around. And does die. Yeah, he dies. You know, that's what the saints do. They run towards suffering. You know, I mentioned they're not superheroes. They're actually anti-superheroes. Go read the writings of the saints. What do you find? It's not, well, I've made it. Here's how you can make it too. It's actually, I'm the worst sinner. Why? Because saints have gotten so close to the light that they see all their flaws so much more. And it's not, you know, hey, look what I accomplished. Now I'm going to live this great life. It's I'm going to die, whether that's through martyrdom or just being aware of my own mortality. You know, it's painful. 
it's painful. One of my favorite videos out there, everybody should go look this up, Lutheran Satire. They've, they've made some great videos over the year. And one of my favorites is uh, they, have, they have a video where it's different paintings of, of the martyrs, you know, including Peter being crucified. And they am, animate the mouths so that they're speaking Joel Osteen quotes. And it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> you know, it's like, I am blessed. I am not stressed. And it's, you know, they're getting eaten by lions or burned alive or something. It's it's wonderful. Everybody go check that out. Lutheran satire, Joel Osteen. You'll, you'll find it on YouTube. And it's like, yeah, that's so funny because it, it gets it exactly. It's like, that's the apathy. You know, just we're going to Joel Osteen at it. God just wants you to be comfortable and happy and okay, and you're happy and I'm happy and we're all smiling and we all are re- relaxed and comfortable. And then the the juxtaposition of the martyrs die in these violent, horrible deaths. You know, it's so the saints show us something else. It's like, and at this point, you're like, are you sure Elijah was a man just like me? Because I don't want to do that. You know, nope. Verse is still there, still a man just like you. Uh, and I, I've got another, look up Hebrews 12, 3 through 4. This is another one of those mean, kind verses out there. Because, you know, like, we're all you know, sitting there just feeling like, okay, we're not even at that martyrdom level, not anywhere close to that. And, and we're having a hard time getting going. Like, we just want to, you know, it's that 40% thing, but in a spiritual sense, we just want to quit. That journey to holiness. And then Hebrews 12, 3 to 4 comes along. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Yeah, like that's another great one. It's like, oh, you're having a hard time? Have you been martyred yet? <laughs> it's so funny like when you start to see uh bible through this lens because we're so apathetic about it most of the time and then you realize what they're actually saying I mean, even if you're not saying martyred you could say even just persecuted yeah like are you bleeding yet yes exactly like uh they used to do other things what was it called when they'd whip them yeah scourged you know has anyone tried to stone you recently uh yeah have you held out against temptation so long that you're, you're you're actually physically suffering because of it no okay you're all right <laughs> you know and of course you know and i'm not trying to say that there's no place for comfort of course there is and we're going to talk about that more next week the joining of the two because that's where the powerful growth comes from is the bringing them together the synthesis of your humanity uh but man so many of us just have lived in apathy for so long that it's like it's like when we're David Goggins, we go out for that first run and we make it a quarter of a mile and we feel like we're going to die. It's like, okay, you know, that's a starting point, but you're not done. That's also, again, to go back to why I love David Dana so much is it's like, that's, that's where you start. You know, if you were 400 pounds eight months ago and you're 320 today, that's awesome, but you're not done. You're not done. You know, you've got more to do. You, you're struggling with temptation and you held out an hour longer than you normally would. Fantastic. You're not done. You're an alcoholic and you had two drinks this week instead of 10. Fantastic. You're not done. Like that's part of what that is. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, you know, and then you look at the lives of the saints and, and they're so good on this, uh, St. Lawrence is somebody we talked about over on the extra feed. You know, he's being martyred. And again, this is one of those apocryphal legends. It's probably not time travel true, but 
why is it told? Because it tells us the type of people the saints are. So St. Lawrence is being uh, martyred on a, on a grate. He's being cooked alive. And he, he, according to legend, says, turn me over. I'm done on this side. Like, ah, stick it to him. And uh, one of the things I learned when I was looking him up yesterday in preparation for this episode is that uh, this is very funny in my mind. He's the patron saint of chefs. <laughs> that took me a second. But I got it. <laughs> it's just great. Oh, another saint I love, more recent one, Padre Pio. A lot of you probably don't know Padre Pio. You should look up Padre Pio. He suffered from stigmata, the wounds of Christ on his arm. He's a 20th century saint, so he's very, very recently. Uh, Padre Pio, just incredible, incredible uh, priest. And uh, a priest at my parish actually shared a story of him in his homily yesterday that I hadn't heard before. And it, it's a very good one because it gets to like what types of people are the saints. So Padre Pio was very famous for, you know, he did a lot of healings. And according to the story, a blind man came to him and asked for healing. And Padre Pio said to him, you have to make a choice, your eyes or your immortal soul. Like, man, that's heavy. You know, because what is it? Like he's going to see and maybe he struggles with lust and then he damns himself because of that. You know, but that's what the saints do, is they do offer comfort. They do offer healing, but then there's this hardness. You know, we again, go back to what is an extremist? An extremist is somebody who forces you to, to a response from you. Okay, you want your eyes or your soul? That's a choice. You have to give it. Uh, I love Paul, you know, because you think about Paul's story. Paul is Saul, and Saul's a bad guy. Saul's an extremist, not the good kind. You know, he's murdering people. He's got a mission. He's an extremist, a very capable one, and he has a mission to destroy the church. And you know what's amazing about Paul's Saul's conversion is that what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen is Jesus doesn't show up to him and say, you need to tone it down. The exact opposite. He takes all of the extremism and redirects it. That's it. That's it. None of Paul's extremism is tempered. None of it. I'm not saying that as Paul grew in holiness, there aren't rough edges that get sanded down. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you have this extreme guy who's going to go murder people. And all that happens is that gets redirected. That's the conversion. The end. And he becomes arguably the greatest saint in the history of the church. Incredible. You know, you think of Mary. Like, and this is a, a challenge I just have for for all the Protestants out there. And I'm not asking you to change any of your theology. But one of the things that I think is tragic is that you don't agree with Catholics or Orthodox on, on our Marian theology. That's fine. But that I feel like so many Protestants have gone too far in the opposite direction. Like they're they're uh, reactionary toward it, and they just neglect who Mary is. Mary's an extremist. She's a young girl, and an angel shows up and says, you're going to give birth to God, and she goes with it. Like, think about that. Go look at Michelangelo's Pieta, and I know it's an artistic representation. Again, you know, not everything has to be literal, but you look at, like, Mary holding the body of Christ after he's taken down at the cross. Like you're looking in the eyes of an extremist. That's what Michelangelo captured there. That's why it's so powerful. That's an extremist who can do that. You know, you think your kid is hard? Try raising God. Like that takes an extremist. 
You know, so the saints give us this. And then Jesus is the biggest extremist of all. And then it's like, again, it makes me so sick when he's like, oh, well, he just came to tell us to be nice to each other. Okay, how did he kick off his ministry? Well, he goes and gets baptized. Good. And then he goes and fasts for 40 days. And then at the end of 40 days, he takes on Satan. Okay, uh, I'll see your three hell weeks in one year and raise you one. Like, that's an extremist. It's an extreme person who does that, you know, and then we all, it's like the, the, well, Jesus hung out with sinners and people say that so they can justify their own sin. But why did Jesus hang out with sinners? Because he demanded a response from them. Like they break against him. It's like, again, a wave on a rock. They just break against him and you have to choose. You have to choose. And some of them choose to go kill him and some of them become saints but there's no middle ground. Like you come up against Jesus, you have to choose. So you're saying we should become that type of person where when people encounter us, faith, like speaking of our faith, they have to make a choice. You should be the type of person, especially in your faith, but not only in your faith, that people break against. That's what the world needs. You know, again, it's like even shared, you know, just something as small as my running goals. And you share that with people. And you could just feel people breaking against it. And that's not even extreme. Mm-hmm. Like that's something thousands upon thousands of people are doing all the time. And people break against it. Why? Because it's not apathy anymore. I wonder what that would look like just in a faith journey. Like what would that look like for you? You're around someone who doesn't believe. Well, I, I think it doesn't like look the, like proselytizing. Your, what is your action? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it comes more from the full force of being. And I'd be very hesitant to say here's specifically mm-hmm. what it looks like. But what I would say is that it's that journey, and it, it's honestly, I got a couple more things to say, um, but that's kind of that's kind of where we're going to go next week, okay. is not so much specifically what does it look like, because I don't want to put a label on that, because it can be radically different. I don't think it looks like, well, you're an extremist now, so you get to hand out tracts. Like, I don't think that's it. Um, but I think it's, uh, I, I think it it is... Become the type of person where you don't have to ask, what should I be doing? Become the type of person who that flows naturally because you've become that holy person. You know, like Goggins doesn't wake up asking, what should I do today to help people? Like he just, he is just himself. It is the presence of his being. And then the rest flows naturally out of that. And so it's that vision of extremists. Yeah, I think of Jesus, one last thing with him. (laughs) <laughs> well, for today anyway, uh, it's like uh, you see a great example of this in, in, in one of my favorite passages in John 21 where like Peter has sinned and then the resurrection happens and then it's time to get Peter back on his feet. And you see this remarkable synthesis in Jesus in that passage because there's the kindness of it. You know, we're going to go pick Peter back up. And then there's this cruelty cruelty to it. And I don't mean cruel in an evil sense. I mean cruel in the sense of what holy people do. Because what does he do to Jesus uh, or to, to Peter? Peter, do you love me? Three times, once for each betrayal. It's like, okay, if we're going to do this, you're going to break against me. And you're, you don't get to just break once. You get to break three times because that's how often you screwed up. You know, it's this powerful moment that is both 
endlessly loving and endlessly cruel. And that's true kindness because that's true holiness. And I hope people understand what I mean when I say cruel. I don't mean cruel in like a sinful sense. I mean it in a much deeper sense. Just like when I speak against kindness here, I'm not speaking against kindness in a true sense. I'm speaking of the, the nonsense way that we talk about. Okay, so here's where I want to leave it for today. Uh, I want to leave it with uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, because we got this great vision last time and, and it's just, it's always amazing when we're doing these, these series that I feel very strongly about. And then it's like the coincidences that happen and it's just happened to be reading this section of Lord of the Rings to my boys and, you know, the stuff from last time, that's where that all came from. And then, and really that whole episode almost came from that. And then this week, what I'm about to read and then next week, man. You know, just I almost was breaking, you know, I, I was fighting back tears reading to my boys with next, with where we're going to go next week. Cause it's so profound and it's, it's just, it's so moving. And like, this has always been a, it's a great section of the book, but I think especially this time, the depth Tolkien finds here is incredible. So here's the setup. You know, we saw last time the ride of the Rohirrim, the charging of the Pelennor fields. And so now Theoden dies which hopefully you've seen the movie, so that's not a shock. He's dead, you know, everything. And Aemer's the new king. And his 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 reign's going to last like an hour because they got orcs over here and orcs over there and there's ships coming up the river. They actually have Aragorn on them, but he doesn't know that. It's just more enemies. And so he's done, you know, and his people are done. This is it. And what does he do? He becomes an extremist. I love this. He says, stern now is Aomer's mood and his mind clear again. He let blow the horns to rally all men to his banner that could come thither. And by the way, anytime in Tolkien, when he drops a thither, you know he's getting, you know, <laughs> you know he's getting serious. And if it's a hither and thither, that's, that's when it's really going down. For he thought to make a great shield wall at the last and stand and fight there on foot till all fell and do deeds of song in the fields of Pelennor, though no man should be left in the west to remember the last king of the mark. So he rode to a green hillock and there sat his banner and the white horse ran rippling in the wind. Out of doubt, out of dark to the days rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. To hope's end I rode into a heart's breaking, now for wrath, now for ruin and a red nightfall. These staves he spoke who spoke yet he laughed as he said them for once more lust of battle was on him and this is one of my favorite tolkien sentences and it's not even good english but that's the point like he breaks the language for it and he was still unscathed and he was young and he was king the lord of a fell people and lo even as he laughed at despair he looked out again on the black ships and he lifted up his sword to defy them so game over it's done. What does he do? He becomes an extremist. It's incredible. It's incredible. All right, so next week, it's that synthesis. You know, we're going to come back to an idea we talked about some last year, the shadow self. That's where this comes from. That that welding of those two sides of you to become that holy person. That's where we're going next week. All right, listeners. Looking forward to next week. Thanks for joining us here tonight. Ben, thank you. You're welcome. And, and, and now you all can like extremists too. And it doesn't even matter if you don't. It's biblical. You, you have to be an extremist. That's what James says. You're out. You can't choose another path. Well, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DeBono. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Goodbye.